Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the one and only Man One, is on assignment. But boy, do we have a great show for you today. Whether it's consumer products, digital startups, or international airlines, brand identity design is big business. And on today's episode, we talk to one of the most successful brand designers in the game today. Ron Vandenberg is a multi-Clio award winner who has designed brands for some of the biggest companies around the world. Over the years, Ron and his wife, Kim, have founded top branding agencies like Future Brand and Anthem Worldwide, which they eventually sold. Now, he's currently launching a new agency called Blue Lab, which you'll hear all about. In spite of his success, Ron is a humble, cool dude who I love talking to and I know you'll love hearing from. But before we get into this, I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. We're here for you. We do this for you. Without you, it wouldn't matter. So thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and share this episode and subscribe to the podcast today. We always have world-class creatives on the show who are top of their field, sharing invaluable experience and advice. So you definitely don't want to miss out. And when you subscribe, you get alerts when new episodes drop. So be sure to subscribe. Also, go check out our website, notrealart.com, and sign up for our newsletter. It's also an easy, cool way to stay informed about all the great stuff we do for artists and art lovers here at Not Real Art. When you visit our website, you get access to free educational videos. You can sign up for our 2021 Artist Grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable, original creative art through our partnership with Sugar Press Art. And if you want, you can even support us through Patreon. So definitely check that out. Now, like I was saying, today's show is going to be great because we got an award-winning brand designer here to share a story with us. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Ron Vandenberg. Ron Vandenberg, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Well, are you a podcast aficionado? Do you listen to podcasts? Have you ever been a guest on a podcast? No. I would say say when it comes to technology, I'm probably like the cooler, you know. (laughs) Yeah, but you want to take the cooler to the beach, man. I mean, you got you got good beers in the cooler, like you know. Exactly. No, I've never done. I love listening to podcasts. I'm a great fan of podcasts, but I've never done a podcast. So this is sort of a virgin opportunity, I guess. Wow, I'm honored. I'm honored that I'm your first. We are your first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's great. You said you listen to podcasts. Is there one that you like? I always like to ask this question because 
by some estimates, there's over uh, around 1.8 million podcasts today. And so it's a saturated marketplace and finding the good stuff is hard, right? Curation, merchandising, retailing of these podcasts, discoverability is very hard. So I always like to ask people what they're listening to, because if there's something great out there, we definitely want our listeners to know about it. So is is there a podcast that you like in particular? I would say for the most part, I tend to follow things that come out of NPR. I would say that that content really interests me. And it also, to me, it's inspiring news. Mm -hmm. It's good news. So I tend to listen to a lot of podcasts that come out from NPR. And then there's a gentleman named Sam Harris from Stanford, who is a neuroscientist and a Buddhist monk. And I listen to a lot of his podcasts. It's a very interesting confluence of things. And I use his app. So I haven't listened to a lot of podcasts on design or creativity, but once you introduce me to what you're doing, I am very interested in exploring that a little more. And then just recently, I've been listening to your podcast, which I've really been enjoying <laughs> since we reconnected on the whole Indivisible. And you, you listened, you heard the show, and you still showed up today. So yeah, that, yeah, you yeah. know, wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, yeah, that is correct. So I guess that <laughs> Not too bad, I guess. <laughs> Well, Ron, I mean, we've known each other a long time. We've been friends. We've been colleagues. And I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. And here we are. So it's a great day for me and our listeners to be able to hear from you, somebody who's been in the brand business for, I don't know, 25, 30 years or more, not to date you, but you are a veteran, as they say, of the business. But more specifically, I wanted to have you on the show in part because you're in the process of launching a new agency, a new company. How's that going? I mean, can you talk about it? Can you share a little bit about what's happening with the new endeavor? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, Scott. I have a partner in this new venture, Olga, and we've known each other for over a decade. She's really the innovation driver of, of this company, and I'm taking the brand piece. So we're the co-founders of this company. It's very close to launch. I think we'll do our soft launch December and then our hard launch in January. And the basic premise of this is that we're combining business innovation and brand innovation into one consultancy. And the real trigger for this is that one of the things that I've observed over the last couple of decades is that a lot of times when organizations decide to engage in innovation or hire innovation consultancies, there's a business need, there's a drop in revenue, there's some sort of triggering event that needs immediate attention. And a lot of times the innovation recommendations are more targeted at solving a short-term problem or a dip in revenue or a competitive threat or something like that and not really aligned with the long-term brand prospects of the organization. So what you have is you have a situation where you're successful in stimulating some short-term revenue, but a lot of times it comes at the expense of your brand equity. So a way of looking at it would be you've got money coming into your checking account, but at the same time, it's draining out of your savings account. So what we were interested in doing was creating what we're describing as a brand smart 
business transformation company where we would do both things simultaneously. We would grow the business through innovation, but we would increase the equity of the brand while we were growing the business. So that's the basic premise of Blue Lab. And that's the name of the company, Blue Lab? That's the name of the company, Blue Lab. Got it, got it. So for those listeners who may not appreciate the distinction between business innovation and brand innovation, how would you answer that? I mean, what is the difference between brand innovation and business innovation? Well, business innovation is something that impacts the actual structure of how a business goes to market. It could reinvent products, services, customer experience, things that are critical to how well the business thrives. So if you look at that, they're mostly things that are generated internally from the company and then pushed out into the marketplace. Brand innovation starts with the consumer or the customer and looks at how the brand is performing and then looks for ways to refresh the brand or empower the brand or accelerate the brand, expand the brand that go beyond just marketing communications or changing the way that the product is packaged or the services are marketed, but completely looks at reinventing the brand so that there's a major shift in the marketplace perception of the brand. And That's like a short version, but that's basically the distinction. Right. So whether it's brand innovation or business innovation, it seems to me that innovation, it's a word that we hear all the time, yet a lot of times it seems to be maybe more talk than action, maybe a bit of window dressing. Why is it so hard for companies to truly deliver on their promises to innovate? If you look at the way that most companies make money, It's by figuring out how to do something, streamlining it, taking the cost out of it, and really focusing on production or distribution, so on and so forth. There are companies, and they're always the same ones that come up in every discussion, whether it's innovation or brands. People will talk about the Apples of the world, the Nikes of the world, the Starbucks of the world. And they have cultures of innovation where... If you look at the core of what that company is all about, they're inventors. They're they're constantly inventing, inventing, inventing. With a lot of companies that struggle with innovation, there isn't that culture of innovation. And also, there aren't people employed to do innovation in that company. So I think that what happens is that When everything is going great, to start to innovate in a lot of these organizations is almost like a scary proposition because it's change. I don't think it's resistance to innovation or invention, but I think it's resistance to change. You know, a lot of people describe change, define change as as something that's good for somebody else. (laughs) Right. And Wall Street doesn't reward change, does it? I mean, to what extent does the quarterly result hold these companies hostage from really being able to trailblaze and innovate and change it up? I think what it is with Wall Street is if you can successfully innovate while you're making money, they're happy. If you can innovate while you're making money, they're happy. If you're innovating because you've had a decline in revenue or a decline in profit, now you're kind of trying to fix that while the performance of the company is going down. They're probably not as 
excited about that, number one. And number two, Wall Street is always judging companies based on what they think their core competencies are, too. So I'll give you an example. If you look at the valuation of Apple, it's not just based on its current performance and its past performance. They're betting on the fact that Apple is going to keep reinventing the future again and again and again because they've done it and they have a track record for it and so on and so forth. If you look at a company like Amazon, it's the same with them in their space. If you look at a company like Walmart, Walmart doesn't have the credit. Innovation doesn't come to mind. So if you look at how Wall Street views Walmart and Amazon, they might bet on Walmart to innovate efficiency or cost reduction, things like that, but not reinventing the future of retail. So I think those things have an impact. What do you think most people or most companies get wrong about innovation? Like when it comes to innovation, what do people misunderstand or maybe ignorant of in terms of innovation? I think the thing about innovation is there's this idea that if you look at the way inventors have been portrayed in the past, it's almost like a cartoon. Like there's this idea that somebody will be sitting in a room thinking about something and a light bulb will go off. And there will be this big idea, and that will be the innovation. Like, it's an idea. And I think that's been the mythology of, of innovation for a very long time. Whereas the truth about innovation is that the best innovation comes from teams of people where you get many different perspectives. But most importantly, the best innovation comes from the deepest customer knowledge and customer empathy. So really, the innovation comes from going deeper and deeper and deeper into what it is that your customer or consumer really, really needs and wants. That's really the core, which is described as human-centered innovation. And so actually, to innovate properly, you have to leave the office and go out into the field and spend time with the people that you're trying to innovate for. That's really where it all starts. So a bit of an ethnographic kind of a survey, right? And a lot of times, if you look at what separates different types of companies, and I think we talked about this earlier, it really comes down to the culture of the company. If people are constantly thinking that way, then the company will be a lot more innovative. And even the apples of the world hire innovation consultants to work with them in terms of the, the different products or, or the next technology or products that they're going to ask. But the, the thing is, the consultants are joining teams of people innovating in what is a culture of innovation. So yeah. the prospects are a lot better. If you have an organization that hires a team of innovators or innovation specialists and brings them in, and there isn't a culture of of innovation, it's a lot more challenging, but it's also possible to help an organization develop a culture of innovation while you're trying to solve the immediate problem or the immediate challenge. Right, right. Well, you know, one of the myths of innovation that I've sort of been aware of and have bumped into is this, and this gets back to your notion about the light bulb, but the fact that there is some big innovation versus a more iterative, nuanced reality, which is oftentimes innovations happening in incremental steps 
versus some big revolutionary. So it's evolutionary versus revolutionary a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the automotive industry, which is over a century old now in our country, the automotive industry started with an enormous innovation. Henry Ford figured out how to build a car and a production line to mass produce cars at a cost that people could afford to buy. So there was this massive innovation that triggered that. But as you're saying, we've had over a century of innovations in that industry since. Safety innovations, styling innovation, it just goes on and on and on. Efficiencies in manufacturing, but they were all focused on the combustion engine. Okay, so while this was going on and all these iterations that were taking place and they were cozy with the oil companies, there were others that were sitting back and saying, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's an entirely different way, and that is that we have a different fuel system. You know, we run a car and a battery versus whatever. So I think that often doesn't happen in these organizations because culturally, If you're the person and you're employed at General Motors and you come to a board meeting and you suggest that the future is not in internal combustion engines, like the first thing you're worried about is whether or not you'll even have a job the next day. (laughs) Exactly. So often those major innovations have to come from the outside. If Henry Ford were an employee at a horse carriage company, and you told them about the idea for a car. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, shout out to Elon Musk right now, by the yeah, way, exactly. who single-handedly upended this massive industry that yeah. said, you know, they couldn't be disrupted. Yeah. And now, I mean, they haven't got it completely figured out, but now they're getting pretty darn close to figuring out the pickup truck. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. That thing's so cool. And <laughs> In America, that's the vehicle that's going to change the game, is once they demonstrate that they can make a better, more powerful pickup truck, then I think that's when we're going to really see things tip in favor of the Elon Musk approach. So when you look back on your career, how have you innovated in the brand business? Like you were at, as I recall, Siegel Gale, then you started Future Brand, then you were at Blue Mint that became Anthem. Now you're launching another agency. And as I recall, each of these agencies had a very unique value proposition. You were innovating in your space. Take us through that a little bit. How does Ron Vandenberg innovate? How have you innovated over the years? That's a great question. Well, what I've tried to do over the years is look at, I'll just step back a bit. The biggest challenge for me over the years has been what I call breaking in. Every segment of the business has always had really established players in it. You know, there might be five companies, they carve everything up, and nobody else gets in. So the real innovation starts with how do you stand up a company in a sector where you really want to play, and there's competitors that own the business. With Future Brand, and Future Brand, we wanted to be in the identity business. We wanted to be in the tier one identity business. That'd be a very good example. So you have Landor, the giant in that business. The original, right? Yeah. You have Siegel and Gale. You had Lippincott and Margulies. You had all these companies that were established, some of them in the 1940s, 
most of them in the 1960s. We were trying to break in in the 1990s. So we looked at, you know, and I did this with some of the other co-founders. So we looked at that industry and said, the corporate identity industry is a legacy industry and everybody does the same thing. Everybody talks about the past and what they did in the past and their accomplishments in the past and how great they were in the past. And that's why you should hire them today. And we thought, well, we can't do that. So, and we don't have that legacy and we don't have that portfolio and we don't have that history. So how do, how do we break in? And we thought, okay, what we'll do is we'll come up with a positioning that is an advantageous for us and a disadvantage for those competitors. And so that's why we call the company Future Brand. So what we did was we made our proposition all about positioning our clients' businesses in the future landscape and not even talking about the past, changing the conversation. So that was different. The other thing is that we didn't go after big clients in the United States right away because the competition was so stiff, but we went after big clients outside of the United States, and we picked up clients in Mexico, all through South America, Europe, Asia, that were very excited about the prospect of being able to work with a U.S., based brand company. We opened an office in Rock Plaza in New York City. It was a place that people wanted to come and see us. So those were some of the differences that got us traction. We got rolling and then we had experience in all these categories like airlines and banking and food and petroleum and things like that. And then we started picking up US clients and the rest as they say is history. And that got us in that space. Do you remember what the first big win was at Future Brand? Yeah. The first big win at Future Brand was Air Canada, which was the government. It was a crown corporation in Air Canada, and they wanted to completely reinvent the airline, redesign the planes, the interiors, the, the branding, the exteriors, painted every touch point for traveling on Air Canada. And that was the first big win outside of the U.S., and it came down to us and Landor, and everything was going well for Landor. And then they asked Landor how many Canadians they had on their team. <laughs> Zero. Let me guess, not enough. <laughs> not enough for Air Canada. And we had Canadians on our team as well. So that sort of tipped it for us. And Landor would have done a great job, but that tipped us for us. We won that. And then that was the basis for winning airline projects all over the world. You know, then we were designing, yes, Saudi Arabian airlines. We were doing, after that, airlines all over the world. What a cool sector to be in. And the greatest honor that we had at Future Brand was that fast forward in the 90s when Nelson Mandela became the president of South Africa. One of the first things he wanted to do was change the branding of South African Airlines because a lot of people had grounded South African Airlines because of the apartheid government. They wouldn't let South African planes land. And so that current identity was associated with apartheid. And so he was smart enough to know that once he was voted in president, they lifted the embargo and they allowed South African planes to land. But he didn't want to send out the old planes. He knew that would be a mistake. So we won that assignment, and we got to work with Nelson Mandela to come up with a new identity for the South African Airlines. 
uh, that became the flag carrier for the nation and the first visual representation that a lot of people saw of the new government and the changes that Nelson Mandela was making. So we went from being the underdog and winning a project from Landor in Canada to being the first choice for uh, South Africa when they changed their airlines. So that was uh, incredible, incredible. So you were able to at some point shake the hand of Nelson Mandela and perhaps break bread with Nelson Mandela. Did not break bread, but we did shake hands. We brought Nelson Mandela also released. He had written a book, The Long Road Home, mm-hmm. and it was turned into a movie. And I've always been really involved in cinema and independent mm-hmm. film and things like that, mainly on and film festivals. And we brought him to New York City. It was mainly my colleague, John Diefenbach, that was responsible. We brought him to New York City to receive that special award for that film. So that was a great honor. That's incredible. So you were at the helm of Future Brand for how many years before you sold? I was one of the two executive creators there. And we sold the company in 1996, and I stayed for three years until 1999, and then I left and moved back to California. Mm -hmm. So what did you do selling your baby? You gave birth to this baby, you raised the baby, Mm -hmm. and then suddenly other parents want to adopt the baby. You hand over the baby into trusting new parents, so to speak. You leave then what? I mean, you come to L.A., then did you just sort of well, you know, go to the beach? <laughs> I was in L.A. before that. Then I was back in New York. I wanted to come back to California, and I thought for the identity business that San Francisco was a better spot. And also, we thought it would be a good place to raise the kids and, and things like that. So what happens is when you sell it is you don't realize exactly what you're saying, that at one point... It's not your baby anymore. And they need you for the first three years to have a really good transition. And then they just want the baby. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye, daddy. Yeah, (laughs) bye-bye. And I was interested in getting it. So the timing was great. The company was doing well. I wanted to get back to California. And at first, I didn't leave. I came out to California. They asked me to stay on and open an office for Future Brand in California. And that was really a great way for me to land in San Francisco and look for companies that we could buy so that we could have a little bit of a kickstart on opening an office. So that was really what I focused on when I first got back to California in San Francisco. Right. You famously won three Clios back to back, as I recall. So you won, it was a gold, silver, bronze in one night. I think, as I recall the story, you won the first award, maybe perhaps it was the gold. You go up to get to where you go back to your seat, you win the next award, you have to go back to the stage, accept that award, you go back to sit down, and then they call your name a third time <laughs> to win your third Clio back to back in one night, historic, never been done before, probably never been done since. Was that during your years of Future Brand? What was the client project? What were those Clio awards for? They were all for the same client. It was one project, and the client, the client was A and P, and they wanted to develop a brand. The brand was called Master Choice, and they wanted to develop, I guess, what you call a private label branded line of products. And that's what we won all the payos for 
we just took a really unique approach to the design system and how we created all the projects. And each one was a category changer. I, I think that's really what happened. And I was lucky that we had a lot of work to submit. So there was a lot of creative to submit. And I think what happened was that they didn't know until after that all the work was by the same company. People were using things and they went, oh, this one. Oh, there you. And I think that's how we ended up with the three in one show. <laughs> well, however it happened, that was a good night. <laughs> it was a good night. It was a good night. So you're in L.A., you've opened the San Francisco office at some point. At what point in this journey did you start Blue Mint and then eventually merge with Shock and Anthem? Was that the next move after Future Bread? I got to San Francisco in time for the first dot-com explosion. Mm -hmm. And I was on the ground, and it was incredible what was going on on here, I tried to explain to my colleagues back in New York that this was happening, this thing called the internet and all these companies and blah, 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 blah. But back in the day, IPG, the company we sold to that owned us, they were old school advertising technology thing that's just starting and they just weren't feeling the dot-com thing. And I just thought, right. well, I got to get in on this. So I left and worked on web brands and webs, everything. It was just like a gold rush here. And then as you know, it was like a gold rush until it wasn't. And then the whole thing, the bottom dropped out. And that was in 2001. It was clear the dot-com blowout, nothing was going to happen for years. So then I was recruited by a company called Fitch, based in London, England, and became the uh, chief creative officer of Fitch. And I was able to work out at San Francisco, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I was approached by Pete Harleman, who was the chairman of Landor. He left Landor, and he wanted to start a consultancy. And then I joined him with my partner, Eric Ashworth, and we started Blue Mint. And our concept for Blue Mint was that we would be experts in not only creating the initial identity and the name and brand assets, but in large programs, how to distribute that brand identity all the way down the line. And it could be something like FedEx, where we would design it so that it could save a lot of money in terms of how it was put on planes and trucks and packaging and things like that. And then we also started looking at private label because in the private label category, it wasn't affected by the downturn in technology and retailers were beginning to get more aggressively competitive with consumer brands. And they had thousands and thousands of individual packages that they needed to put in the store. So that was one of the key things that we focused on. And we picked up a company, we won the Safeway account here, and we started developing brands for them and packaging for them. And in the same competition, they chose uh, Shock to do all the downstream production. And that's how we got to know Shock. We, got, we were working with them at Safeway. Right. Now, and was Albertsons part of the Safeway portfolio at that time? Because I thought you guys also had done it. Was yeah, Albertsons yeah. Was a separate client? Yeah. What happened is, well, Albertsons was 
a separate company and they were funded by Wall Street to do a roll-up and they started buying supermarket chains all over the country. So they, they buy, let's say, 10 companies the size Safeway that covered every region in the U.S. And so that's how these things go. They looked at the work that we were doing for Safeway, which was just one of the companies they purchased. They liked what we were doing, and then they brought us in to do out. Then they brought us in to do Albertsons, and it just kept yeah. rolling and rolling. And uh, Shaw saw how powerful it was to be able to be at the head table with the client when all the decisions were being made versus being further downstream when everything went into production. Right. And that's why they got interested in acquiring us. Right. So as a creative leader for 30 some years, you've hired and worked with so many creatives. What do you think when you're looking to hire a creative person, a creative thinker, a designer, you know, and bring them on your team? I mean, what are you looking for? What stands out to you? I think there's three things that I look for. The first thing is talent. And the reason I look for talent is it doesn't really matter what other credentials are there in terms of what school they went to or the grades that they graduated with. If the talent isn't there, then it's not going to work. Yeah. It's not going to work. And I've been around long enough to have seen that. So the first thing I look for is just is that innate talent there. The second thing is, can they take direction and give direction? Can they do both? So can they take direction and then in turn have team members that they can give direction to? Mm -hmm. Because they have to be able to do both. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I look for is somebody that will put the greater good of the project, the greater good of the client, the greater good of the company, their coworkers ahead of self-interest. That's the third thing that I always look for. And that's a key point too, right? Because I feel like so many young people coming out of design school or art school, they're very idealistic. <laughs> you know, as you know, uh, there was a time when you and I worked together at Anthem and I remember Pete Harleman, we were all frustrated about something. I forget now what it was, but Pete just sort of said, guys, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just a real thing. Deal with it. <laughs> you know. So it's interesting, right? Because it comes with that sort of experience, hopefully helps you mature and realize that it's not about me, it's about them and their business goals. Well, it's hard because on the creative side of any endeavor, you know, whether it's in the brand space, advertising, movie making, creative people that are in it are in it because they're passionate about it. They have a vision, they're passionate, they're willing to do whatever it takes to realize that vision. And I think the difficult thing for creative people in any endeavor that has to make money is learning that creative people don't make the final decisions. The business people make the final decisions. And that's a tough pull to swallow, and it's certainly nothing that you're aware of when you're going through art school or design school or film school, isn't it, until you get out into the business and you realize, no, that's how it works. And there's a story that I've heard you tell that is sort of a great illustration of that. And I'll try to refresh your memory and then you can tell it. But as I recall, you were, forgive me if I get this wrong, but you were working with the board of directors at Chevron. They were getting into food. They've never sold food at gas stations before. It was a big deal. You guys had done all this research 
about what kind of colorways they should be using. And you had all this empirical data to back up your recommendations. And then they made the decision. Do I have that story right? Like, tell that story. That's such a great story. Yeah, you did an excellent job. I mean, all the research pointed to the fact that people associated gasoline with blue and they associated food with red. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but that was it. And we presented that to the board and the chairman listened. And then he said he liked blue the way he was thinking about it. It was blue. So that was just another example also that yeah, they're blue. They'll learn to like blue. Yeah. If you pull into a Chevron station, they're blue. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that's the reality, right? As a creative person, we do have to have integrity about what we do and we're passionate and what have you. But at the end of the day, we're here to serve our clients and yeah. they make the decision at the end of the day for their business. When are you writing your book, Ron? No, I don't think I'm writing a book. You're not going to write a book? No. You know, I've threatened to do a tell-all for decades, but no, <laughs> I don't. No. I think what I get the most pleasure from is putting my energy, just like Blue Lab, putting my energy into thinking about what's the next thing and then just having a chance to focus on that, launch it and try to grow it, turn it into something. I think that's really... Yeah, you're a gamer. You want to be in the game. You don't want to be writing about the game. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think people, you know, things change so fast. I don't know unless somebody's sort of interested in ancient history as it relates to the design world or something. But I think that really is what it is, and it's exciting. I mean, this is definitely the last one I'm going to do, but it's exciting to just... You said that the last time, though, I think, so... That's true. But but we keep getting older, and I think it's an interesting time right now with the COVID economy. Mm -hmm. Almost every organization has to innovate and change right now. And has to reassess their brand, their values, their purpose, their business, everything that's going on. So it's a really interesting time. And it's really exciting just to have a chance to, as you framed it, it's really exciting just to have a chance to play one more time. Yeah. Well, we would be remiss uh, hugely if we didn't point out that a huge part of your success is the woman that you're married to. I mean, Kim has been with you from day one and you guys have been partners in business as well as in life. Like how has your life partner and relationship with Kim helped you over the years? I mean, I don't think you could have done it without her, quite frankly. No, let's start there. (laughs) We buried the lead. I'm sorry. I hate when I do that. We met in the advertising business. We met at work. I was on the creative side and she was... On the account side, we met at McCann Erickson. It's very cliche. We met at a photocopier <laughs> at McCann Erickson. So that's kind of what exactly were you making a photocopy of, Ron? I was waiting to make a photocopy. Okay. Oh, um, interesting. We were at the photocopier, <laughs> and we got together really quickly. We did decide to get married in six weeks, and so we got off to an interesting start because we got to know each other after we decided to get married. <laughs> And hey, that's the way the Sikhs do it. (laughs) I think what it worked for me is that once we got married and we were together, that was the first time 
that I actually was able to get some traction in terms of my career and what I wanted to do and where, where I wanted to go. And I had a partner that came from the same business as me. We met in the advertising business, so we knew the same things about the business. And we represented really the two halves of the advertising business, which is the creative side and the account side. So if you think of it, our marriage union was also the DNA of an agency too, you know, because we had both sides and we were both entrepreneurial and she had a great appetite to not just work for other people, but to have our own business. So in the beginning, when I started the first business, she stayed working. She collected this steady paycheck while I was trying to get something started, which I started actually in our apartment. And so we've been partners in some form in every business since then. And it's also been really helpful for me because she's not only super smart business person and financially savvy, but she's got a great understanding of creative and design and copywriting and everything that came out of her years of experience in the advertising business. So she completely gets both sides. And it's been really wonderful for us to not only be married and have a family together and that whole side of lives of our lives, but it's been really wonderful that we've been able to have this other aspect of our marriage where we've been able to work together. And I think a lot of people, they get married and they don't see each other that much because you've got two careers and everybody's running around and so on and so forth. So it's, it's also been wonderful that we've been able to work together and create these businesses and build them and sell them, but also that we've been able to just spend that amount of time together. Right. And even with Blue Lab, she doesn't want to jump right in because we stopped working about three years ago. But she said it helping set up the whole business side of Blue Lab. So she's still in there. Right, right. She's still playing in the sandbox a little bit. Still playing in the sandbox, yeah. That's fantastic. Well, you know, one of the great honors that I had recently was that you agreed to exhibit in a virtual art exhibition that we were curating called Indivisible and United We Stand, Divided We Fall. Our company, Cruest, our roots are in the art world. We had a gallery for 12 years. And so we'll always produce and develop and curate art exhibitions from time to time when it's right, when it feels right, when it makes sense. And when 2020 hit, COVID hit, social justice issues flamed up again, not the least of which, of course, being the murder of George Floyd. When that happened, I thought to myself, how can we uh, be a part of the conversation in a positive way? What can we bring to the table? How can we use our platform as a content company to try to shine a positive light or shine a light and bring some positive energy to this really dark year? And so, as you may know, we have an artist grant every year. And in 2019, one of the artists that won our grant, Karen Ferrito, is a political artist. She's done some incredible stuff. She's gotten death threats for her work. It's so compelling. And so I reached out to her and said, what do you think about doing a political art show? What do you think about curating it? And of course, not surprisingly, she jumped at the chance. And one of the names that I put forward, I said, well, I really would like to invite Ron Vandenberg to be a part of the show. And you were so gracious in being a part of it. And so thank you, first and foremost, the show for our listeners, the show is a virtual online 3D gallery. By the way, 
you don't know this. We've decided to keep it up all year. We're just going to let it. Yeah, we're going to let it hang through 2021 because this idea of indivisibility, it's in the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. This hasn't come up yet in our conversation, but you were, I believe, born in Holland, raised in Vancouver, correct? In Toronto. Toronto. I'm sorry. Right. You're an immigrant. You immigrated to New York City, right? So as an immigrant, as a Canadian with Dutch roots who has embraced the American dream in such a real way, I mean, what does this idea of indivisibility mean to you as a human being and as an artist? I think the ideal of indivisibility, which has great appeal, and it certainly has appeal in terms of the way that I feel about the United States, or that I've always felt about the U.S. even before I immigrated here. One of the things I've always loved about the U.S. is that in spite of all the differences, you know, when there was something really important, the whole country could pull together. Yeah. And when dealing with an external threat, the country could become indivisible and pull together. And other accomplishments, getting to the moon, so on and so forth. So to me, it's a really important part of the fabric of the U.S. Regrettably, I think the thing that's triggered your theme or the show is the fact that we haven't quite been that indivisible lately. We've become divided. Is it always going to be aspirational? Perhaps it's always been aspirational, right? Like depending on what metric, maybe our country, the reality is that on some level we have always been divided, whether you were slave or free, black or white or male, female, property owner, not a property owner, so on and so forth. Obviously, it's a beautiful aspiration to have, to be unified and to be together. But what say you? I mean, is this aspiration for indivisibility even plausible? I'm not a politician. I'm certainly not an expert on political science. So all I can offer is just my feelings about it and also my observations as a marketer. Hmm. One of the things that they tell you in the public relations aspect of marketing is don't start believing your own press. Right. Okay? So yep. I think that one of the things about America is that we are the best marketers in the world. If you look at our companies, the companies that have been successful in marketing have been mainly U.S. companies. The biggest marketing organizations that clients hire are mainly based in the U.S. Like marketing is something that we've always been really good at. And we've been really good at marketing us to the world and marketing us internally. And that creates a lot of expectations about the U.S., whatever it is, right? Like you can come here as an immigrant, you can work your way up to the top, anybody can become president, whatever. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of possibilities. And to a large extent, that's true. But to build on what you're saying, to a large extent, that isn't true mm. for everybody. Mm. Not everybody gets a kick at the can. Not everybody is willing to trade self-interest for the greater good, so on and so forth. And so I think where I'm at with it is I'm not anything else but trying to just be realistic about what the future looks like. I'm not pessimistic, but I just want to be realistic. And I think what I'm seeing is if we have an external military threat, we seem to be able to come together really quickly and because we have a common enemy and we seem to be able to do that. What we don't seem to be able to do is the same thing for things that are internal. Yes. 
institutional racism, unfair capitalism. I mean, there are things that we don't seem to be able to come together on. And, and the political parties are very, very separate. The rhetoric is each one demonizing the other. It's almost as though, I mean, we needed an election. That's what we need for a democracy. But the way that I look at it is we need a negotiation to get to a realistic point in terms of how we can move forward together. And I think the reality is if you look at the numbers, the Democrats won the election, but they won by 5 million votes. There was a pretty strong vote on the other side. So we're divided. Maybe it isn't 50-50, maybe it's 60-40, whatever it is. We're divided. And I think what we need to do now is we need to negotiate with each other. And when you negotiate... You end up somewhere in the middle. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Right. Like you end up somewhere in the middle. You're not going to get everything you wanted. The other person isn't going to get everything they wanted. Yeah. At least you end up with an agreement for how you can move forward. And that's the way that I look at it now. I think we just need to have a negotiation between the two sides and try to agree on enough things so that we can find a path forward. Yeah. It seems as though so many Americans have lost confidence in those institutions that sort of kept us together, right? Maybe initially it was the church, whether it was the Catholic controversy with child abuse. And now we're losing faith on our politicians and maybe in our political parties. Bringing this back around a little bit, and maybe this is idealistic or what have you, but to what extent can brands help bridge the divide? I mean, brands like Facebook, brands like Twitter, There's all kinds of interesting conversations happening right now about are they helping or hurting our democracy? But in many ways, brands are trusted. People trust Amazon to deliver. People trust Apple. Is there an opportunity for brands to get involved in helping to unify our country in a way that perhaps they've never done before? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Well, you can start at the top of our political system. We have two parties. The two brands are Democrats and Republicans. Liberals and conservatives, whatever you want want to call them. And we've had two choices for the entire history of the country. But now we're over 300 million people, and we're deeply divided. And I look at it, so the first thing that I think of from a brand perspective is maybe we need a third brand. Okay, if this were a marketing challenge, mm-hmm. and we looked at the landscape, and you had something extreme on the right and something extreme on the left, what we would do, Scott is we put a brand right in the middle. Okay, so a brand that maybe attracts both moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats. I'm just giving you yeah. an example. Yeah, so maybe one of the ways to break the stalemate is to create a third choice. Okay, so you don't have to be extreme end of one, you don't have to be at the extreme right. end of the other. Right. You know, maybe there's a third choice. Now, neither political party likes that idea because... Now you have two competitors, not one competitor. But I think that's a way to look at it from a branding point of view. And then the other thing is that if you look at companies, the companies that you're talking to, and I think it's happening already, politics has entered business in terms of answering the question, what do you stand for, right? If you look at Facebook and you look at no matter how you feel about it, if you look at the way that they've navigated through this phase that we're in, I think people have a pretty good idea of what Facebook stands for now. I think that's a really interesting question. When you look at what brands do, 
And what brands are, I think, if you look at the political landscape, so if you look at the party brands, if you look at the news brands, so you've got Fox, you've got CNN, if you look at the social media platforms, you've got Twitter, you've got Facebook, and now there's more emerging. I think that conservatives are launching their own yes. version of it. Yeah, and things like that. I think when I look at it from a branding point of view, that if you look at brands and how you build them and what they stand for, I think that there's a great opportunity for new brands to be launched into the political landscape that we all find ourselves in. I agree with you 100%. And I've wondered myself to what extent these political parties embrace human-centered innovation and design thinking as they begin to plot and plan their campaigns and so on and so forth. What would the Democratic Party stand for if the powers that be got in a room and worked through an exercise with your new firm to think about what their value proposition needs to be moving forward? Because, you know, the rhetoric hasn't really changed, right? Although it, maybe it's changed a little bit because the right's done a really good job of branding the left as baby killers and evil, while the right has stood for babies and God and country. And I agree with you also with the third party. I feel like that triangulation that would have to happen if there was that third player would force compromise in a way that we're not compromising right now. And if there was ever a chance for a third party, it feels like now's the time because the center is so there actually are a lot of moderates on both sides that could form a third party. But, you know, I feel like there are a lot of people out there who are, of course, have no interest in a third party forming and obviously would take a ton of money and a lot of effort on by a lot of people. But yeah, how might the brand of America, how might we restore and reinvent and refresh ourselves if we could take a more human-centered, because politicians love to talk about how we should run this country like a business, you know, how we should run our country like a business. The best businesses are embracing ideas of human-centered design and consumer-led innovation. I mean, but our country doesn't seem to, or at least our politicians don't seem to do that. And personally, I would love it if Democrats could figure out how to stand for something I think is very American, which is innovation. Innovation, not just in terms of industry and business, but innovation from the policy, innovation in terms of lifestyle and culture and so on and so forth. But that's my humble opinion. The thing is that we, we stand for many things, and one of them is innovation. We are the world leader in innovation. You know, Silicon Valley is the epicenter of technological innovation. But we're also becoming increasingly famous for things that aren't great, like systemic mm -hmm. racism. We're pretty famous for that, too. <laughs> yeah. But I think what it is, as far as innovation goes, is if you look at the benefactors, what we have right now is, and I think you said this earlier in our conversation, people are voting for themselves. There used to be a time when people were voting for the greater good. I don't think that's saleable right now in this environment because clearly we have one party that is the party of self-interest. Self-interest could be, I don't want to pay taxes. Self-interest could be, I want white people to be in charge. It could be a variety of things. And then you have another party that stands to be ideal of the greater good. 
I think that what has to happen is, from an American point of view, the first thing that we have to do with ourselves and with the rest of the world is manage expectations. Let's just say this is where we are, right? Like, let's yeah. not sugarcoat it. But we have to manage expectations. And then what we have to do is we have to say, why don't we, instead of voting against the other person, which is going on and on and on in terms of like, what's better for you? Why don't we vote in a way that our children's grandchildren will thank us? Everybody's children's grandchildren will thank them. Why don't we start voting that way? And if you're in a part of the U.S. that is in the Rust Belt and every industry is going, whatever it is, you're having a tough time, you're frustrated. What about your kids? What about their kids? What about the kids of those kids? What can we do now? We don't have to change somebody's ideology to be selfless that way because there's families on both sides. Right. The common humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And also a common interest in saying that we have an obligation to think about our kids and their kids. So the thing is, the environment is one of them. Opportunities is a really big one, too. So I think, I think it's possible to find, I don't know, this is just my opinion, but I think it's possible to find common ground and common interest while people are still hanging on to their beliefs at this particular time. Yeah. You, know, you had talked about abortion. Like, are we really going to change anybody's mind on one side of the issue or the other nope. in the near future? Well, I'll tell you, speaking of children, I'll tell you the other day, I was thinking about all of this in terms of, you know, where do we find hope? Where are the bright spots? And it sort of dawned on me. It's like my daughter's eight. My son is three. They are both adopted. They are both children of color. And what dawned on me in thinking about this is that my daughter's eight years old. The first president that she will remember was a black male, was a black man. The third vice president of her life will be a black female. So for my daughter and my son, who's three, it's normal for them to see a president whose skin color is different than theirs. Like this is just part of their reality. For those of us who are older, who know the struggle, who know a little bit of history, who know how hard won that has been, we sort of see it in that larger context. And so maybe it's harder for us to see or be positive sometimes about things. But for my kids, man, this is their normal. And I found a lot of joy and hope in that reality for them. Totally. Well, and also, do they see what we see? So, you know, you're talking about your kids. When Obama was debating John McCain in the debates before the first election, we watched the debates with our kids. You know, it was the first time, just what we were saying, it was historic, first time a black man was running for president we're watching the debates, and that was what was going on in my mind, in, in Kim's mind. And so we talked about it with our girls after the debate and asked them what they thought. And it was really interesting. What they said to us was, they said, we liked the younger man better. They didn't refer to him as the black man or the white man because they didn't see that. What we saw was an older man 
and a younger man. And that was so powerful for us because we weren't looking at it that way. Right. We were looking at a black man and a white man. They didn't see that. And so I think part of what can give us all hope is that things haven't changed everywhere, but they've changed a lot in a lot of places. And our kids don't look at the world through that lens, through that lens as the first thing that we identify as somebody's ethnicity or their race. But I, I think it all comes down to we worked together at Kaiser Permanente and through some miracle of circumstances, I ended up one day, I was waiting in Jack's office to have a meeting with him and Bernard came in. He wanted to talk to him and he was on the phone. I was waiting there, whatever. I was, and you know what Bernard's like? He hmm. sat down. All of a sudden, I'm sitting there with the CEO of Kaiser Permanente. Hmm. And we're not in a meeting. I'm not pitching something. We're just talking. I asked him, I said, Bernard, I've always been interested in your story, you know, which is an incredible story. Yes. Yes. There's a person who came up from very humble circumstances to become the CEO of a multi, multi billion dollar organization. I said, you know, just how you're interviewing me. And I said, what was the key to your story? And he said, well, he said, I think it all comes down to what you believe. And you can either believe that life is a series of random events that are disconnected and you have no control over them and there's no organizing principle. Or you can believe in manifest destiny. And you can believe that things happen for a reason and they're meant to happen and you go with that and you move from one thing to the next thing. And that's always stayed with me. And I think that's what's really giving me hope right now when I look at what's happening, all the things that we're yep. dealing with in this country is I believe in manifest destiny. I don't want to believe that life is just a series of random events. And so that's what's really giving me hope. The thing is, there's a great quote about America, you know, having exhausted every other option, eventually America will do the right thing. <laughs> right. You know, and I think we're just going through one of those. We're trying to exhaust every other option. And for a lot of us, we're sitting back and going, why don't we just do the right thing? But no, <laughs> you know, and I'm still optimistic about the fact that we are going to do the right thing. I don't know how long it's going to take or what the narrative is going to be, but I haven't lost my optimism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think this is the importance and value of history as well. And knowing a little bit can give you hope because while we have very real problems, problems that need to be dealt with, existential problems, some of them, climate change, for example. But if you know a little bit of history, it's hard to make an argument that these are the worst of times, because whether you were black in this country in the 50s or 60s, or you were Jewish in Europe in the 30s and 40s, or pick your example. I don't know if you saw the Ken Burns documentary series, Vietnam, but I watched the 12 hours of that series and I was very hopeful after watching that because the late 50s, 60s and early 70s were horrific in this country due to Vietnam and assassinations and corruption and lying. Are we where we want to be or need to be? No. But is the sky falling? No. And I think you have to err on the side of hope and positivity because what's the alternative? Well, and also, are you going to be part of the problem or are you going to be part of the solution? 
I think for me, what it is, is everybody has to do their own thing. So what I'm trying to do now is accept that whatever, 70 million, for example, 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. It's kind of hard for me to understand, but I accept that 70 million people voted for him. So now what I want to do is I don't want to judge that. I want to understand that. Right. I want to talk to these people and understand where they're coming from and try to be a bridge. I keep talking about the middle, but I think you can either be divisive. You can come out of this thing and continue to be divisive, or you can come out of this thing and start trying to build bridges and understand what's happening on the other side of the issue and talk to people like people. And I think for me, that's the thing that I'm the most comfortable. I don't want to demonize people who don't see things the way I think about them. I don't want to demonize them because I'm riding some sort of media wave. What I want to do is just be out in the world and get to know them and understand where they're coming from. And also use that as some way of trying to be a bridge builder. Everybody has to come at it the way that works for them. But I've just decided that that's where I want to be on the issue. I agree. I mean, I know a lot of Trump voters. You know, I'm from the Midwest. I know them, some of them, my whole life. And I know they are good, decent people. But for all kinds of reasons, whether they really like Trump or not, in terms of his style, and his personality. A lot of these folks, they've seen opportunities dry up. They're worried about their future or their prospects. And part of it was they were sick and tired of conventional politicians. And here comes this guy. And by the way, snake oil salesmen are as American as apple pie. Yeah. So here comes Donald Trump, who's not a politician. He's a businessman. He's going to drain the swamp. Well, for a lot of people who are feeling desperate, that resonated. And when he got elected, my liberal friends here in L.A. were surprised and shocked. I, because of my roots back in the Midwest and traveling back in the Midwest, I wasn't surprised because I'd seen all the Trump signs. Mm-hmm. You know, was I disappointed and sad? Yeah, because my gal didn't win. I voted for Hillary. She didn't win. But my liberal friends from New York and L.A. who were so shocked and sad that Trump won and surprised, Well, they are also the same people that referred to the rest of the country as flyover states as they flew from New York to L.A. Yeah. The thing is that what we learned from this with Trump, I think, is that people want what they want. And they were voting for him because they wanted what they want. The people that you're talking about, the people in the Midwest. And there are a lot of things that they don't care about as long as they can get what they want. That's what we learned. And I think if you break it down, if you break it down, it's really understanding. And I just want to understand more clearly, what is it, if I look at the Republican Party that came out 100% in force and voted for Donald Trump again, and I try to break it down into subsections, just the way that we do in marketing, maybe there's five groups that make up the Republican Party who have different motivations And I just want to understand where they're coming from. They're not in my circles. They're not in your circles. I mean, we have Republicans in in our family, but I can tell you, I would say in my family, the number one issue is taxes. I'm just going to give you an example. 
Yeah. Right. They don't like paying taxes. They have money, the business people, yeah. or whatever. They don't want to pay taxes. So I get into these discussions and it's like, really? You're willing to go for that? Just so they right. can. <laughs> so you can have lower taxes? And it's right. Like, yeah. And so then I go back to the Democratic side and it's almost like, and that's why at the beginning I was saying a negotiation. If you want people to vote a certain way, you've got to give them what they want. So part of it is, I'm just giving you an example, like taxes. It could be, all right, the Democrats have to really think about their tax policy because if they don't, they're never going to get that group of voters. It doesn't matter what happens because all they care about is taxes. There's another group that's worried about this, whatever that thing is. There's another group that's worried about that. The people on the religious right, they're always going to vote because abortion is the main issue. So it's almost like, forget it, that's never going anywhere. But if we look at this as marketers, I think that that's what we have to understand. Like We have to go out and talk to people and really kind of understand where they're coming from. Or the other thing is we have to change the Constitution and give more power to the states. And so, for example, California, I mean, we're like a country. We're in control of more things at a state level than, let's say, a a national level, and eliminate the idea that abortion will ever be resolved nationally. Change the Constitution and go, you know what? You can have states where you can get abortion, and there will be states where you can't. Right. And we're never going to – I'm just giving you an example. Yeah. Yeah. It's tragic to say from a racial point of view that we've all looked at the electoral map if I were a person of color, all I do is I look at that map and I go, you know, maybe that's not a good place for me to live. <laughs> like, yeah. Idealistically, anybody should be able to live anywhere, but and maybe there's a great negotiation and a great migration, but I don't know. Those are just the ways that I look at it. I just wonder if we're better off to just do some structural change. Yeah. I each state more. And look at this COVID thing. You can break it down by states. Our attempts at a national um, <laughs> solution. Right. Yeah, well, it's clearly a global issue too, right? I mean, it is yeah. hard to get human beings. I mean, it's like herding cats to get you know human beings to do, let alone Americans who are incredibly self-determined and value their freedom, what have you. It's hard to get them to do what you want them to do in mass. I do have hope. I think... There is, as I said, I mean, we've had, you know, my daughter's lifetime, first black president. We're about to have our first female black vice president. The demographics of this country are changing. And that's why the Republicans are doing their best to maintain the status quo by stacking the courts and stacking the state houses and so on and so forth, because ultimately the demographics are changing. They know it. You can't stop that. Again, that's one of the reasons I have hope. I mean, the old white guys are dying off. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable. <laughs> and the younger uh, blood, your daughter said it best, the young guy, the yeah. young person, the young woman are coming in eventually, if not sooner. And that will change. You know, that will be positive, I believe. Yeah. And so I have hope for that. Ron, I also have hope because you're my friend. And boy, I'm better off. Knowing you, your friendship is a gift. I'm so grateful to call you a friend. I wish you all the best in your new venture. 
Blue Lab is the uh, URL, bluelab.com. Can people check you out online? Yeah, I'm just finalizing that right now. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll send you a link to the site. And it's still a working process, and I'd love to get your feedback. So I'll do that today. Oh, very cool. I'd look forward to seeing it. It's an exciting venture. Maybe you'll even be able to get in there and help the Democratic Party innovate <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and make some positive change for their brand. But best of luck to you, my friend. Love to the family. Thanks again for sitting down. I know you're a busy guy. Your time is valuable. The fact that you gave us almost two hours today is a gift. Thank you very much. Thank you. And right back at you, Scott. All right, my friend. Cheers. Cheers. Hey there, thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out. 